Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering live calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, or making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com or better yet, call us at 855 255 Ruby. My guest today is Lester Thornhill, President and CEO of Life's Abundance. Life's Abundance creates and sells essential everyday products for people and pets that will keep the entire family healthy. Lester has a strong background in IT with a computer science degree from Florida International University. Welcome, Lester. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about being here. Well, I first want to ask about this combination of people and pets and uh, the fact that you guys sell. I don't know if it's completely online, uh, but tell us a little bit about the company, what you guys do today. Sure. The name of the company is Life's Abundance. And what we really focus on, Paul, is selling products for the whole family. So we include pets in the definition of family. And our goal is to make safe and healthy products. A lot of times when people are concerned about their health and they start trying to make better choices diet-wise and with the products that they use, they find that it's really confusing. They start looking at ingredient labels and they see all these chemicals that they're not really sure about. And what we specialize in is taking the hassle and the worry out of the products you use every day by making safer and healthier versions of those for our customers. Mm. And uh, are, would you say that most of your customers take advantage of kind of the whole family spectrum of products that you provide? What we find is that generally our customers either start purchasing our pet products or they start purchasing our nutrition products. And eventually over time, they start uh, migrating and trying other things. Ah, okay. So tell me a little bit of kind of demographically about the company, where you're based, maybe size, number of employees, so we just have a little bit of a context. Sure. So we're based uh, in Florida. Our headquarters is in Jupiter, Florida. We've got about 50 employees. We do have uh, five warehouses scattered throughout the United States, so we do have some employees in other states, but mostly in Florida. Okay. And... Uh, I know that you started with the company. Uh, your background is IT. Um, so did you start in an IT role? Yes, I did. I actually started as the uh, IT director back okay. in 1999. Well, and then you uh, got this great opportunity uh, in 2008, 2009 to become the CEO of the business. How did, uh, how did that whole transition happen? So the, uh, the existing CEO took me out to dinner and uh, said, hey, you know what? i like to talk to you and come to dinner with me, bring your wife. So wasn't sure exactly what was going on, but we went to dinner with him and he said, I'm ready to retire and I'd like you to be CEO. And it was sort of like out of the blue, but I said, okay, sure. And uh, because I, I, even though I was in IT, I really have a, uh, I love economics and I 
I thought I had a good business mind. And when I was a child, I actually wanted to get into computers, not for the sake of being a geek, but because I thought that would give me an edge in the world of business. So it was a natural transition for me. So did you aspire to that leadership role in the company? Was this something that you guys had been discussing or did he just uh, kind of surprise you with it? It was a total surprise. We had not discussed it, but after that dinner, I thought back and I realized that we had had a conversation a couple months before that was basically my interview for the position. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, you've done a lot since then, and and uh, what you know, not to say it's it doesn't happen, but to have somebody in in a in an IT role not only take that role like you did, but your focus is very much around people, uh, and 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 uh, and the culture that you've built uh, in the organization and continue to build upon. Can you give a couple examples of some of the unique things that you do in this people-focused culture? Sure. One of the things that we, we do is we have an internal blog. And uh, on that blog, we post every day. And it's just a great way to, to communicate about our culture, about our core values, and to recognize the purpose of the blog is to recognize things that we do individually and as a group that exemplify our core values. And it really helps uh, the employees to better understand what the company is all about and what we're looking for. Now, who contributes to the blog? Everybody contributes to the blog. Everybody has the ability to uh, to post and to comment. So it's not a top-down blog where I put stuff up there and everybody comments. Uh, everybody has the ability to post. You know, something else that I read about was that uh, – you kind of did away with the traditional performance review process and you do a monthly uh, sort of a self-assessment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. That's one of the things that I'm happiest about. The The annual review process is, is something that a lot of people dread. They dread coming in once a year and being judged on everything that they've done for the entire year, half of which they don't even remember. Uh, managers, it kind of sucks to uh, talk to somebody about things that happened nine months ago. It, it's just not an effective way of, of communicating. And so this monthly self-assessment gives us the opportunity to touch base with uh, every person every month and give them some dedicated alone time where we can talk about, uh, they, they fill out a form. It usually takes them about 10 minutes. They they write down the things that they accomplished in the preceding 30 days. They write down the things that they think they could have done better in the preceding 30 days. And then they write down their plans for the next 30 days. And they meet with their manager. Meetings usually go about 10 minutes, maybe 15. And their manager talks to them about their plans for the next 30 days and what what they need to do and, and goals and self-improvement plans and you have like a roadmap over a 12-month period of all the different things you talked about and all the different things you worked on. Uh, employees find that when they have to actually think about what am I going to get accomplished in the next 30 days, at first it was very difficult, but now it's part of the, the routine where you're not just thinking about what you've got to do today, but what you're, what you're intending to accomplish and then looking back the next month on whether you got it done or not. And it's a really nice, comfortable conversation. Uh, you always know where you are and where you stand. And it's, it, it's, I think, a very big improvement over the annual review. 
You know, I think that's such a practical way to do it. And you're right. Uh, nobody likes that annual review. Uh, the employee doesn't like it. The manager doesn't like to do it. Uh, we end up holding stuff that we should be talking about during the year. Uh, so uh, just doing it in short bites. And it sounds like it's really casual and informal as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a just a great, very practical tool that people can learn from. Um you know, uh, I know there's a number of other things that you've done. We'll get to those, including how you guys converted um, from your original ownership structure to an ESOP, and I want to talk about that. But this idea that uh, you were thrown into this leadership position as a CEO and have thrived in that, I want to know what makes you who you are, Lester, and take you back a little bit. So just talk a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, uh, maybe early influences from your folks. Sure. So um, I actually grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. Tobago, which is in the Caribbean, and uh, early influences. I grew up in a home with my my mom and her parents, so uh, my grandparents. And both my grandparents were teachers. They had four children. The two girls became teachers, and the two boys became entrepreneurs. And later, one of them became a pastor. And so, growing up, I always had this influence of uh, the stress, the importance of learning but also entrepreneurship. And when my grandparents retired, they actually opened their own private school, which ended up being a thriving school. They built a three-story building. So I always had both influences growing up. And what I learned at an early age was uh, from the, the teacher side of the house was never to underestimate people. They, they gave private lessons and I saw a lot of students come in that were terrible students and they left doing very, very well. And it was never about their ability. It was about what they thought about themselves. And it would usually trace back to a careless comment a teacher made, a careless comment a parent made in anger about, you know, not you not amounting to anything or not being able to do certain types of work that they internalized. And it took so much effort and so much positive reinforcement to overcome that one negative comment that somebody made. I learned that words really matter, and sometimes a negative word or a word spoken harshly takes 20, 30 times the amount of positive reinforcement to erase. Mm. And that's something I've kept with me throughout life. And I also had a very influential teacher that in high school, and this is this was a, a thick something that I think was one of those fork in the road moments. He gave us a problem to do. He's a math teacher. Gave us a problem to do one day, and nobody could do it in class. And uh, looking back, I, I realized that uh, it was intentional because he wanted to teach us this lesson, and it changed my life. So he said to us, "All right, everybody, stop working." Let me tell you why you can't figure this out. You cannot figure this out because you can't see around corners. We all had this puzzled look on our face. And he said, like follows in straight lines, guys, you cannot see what's around the corner. The answer you're looking for is around the corner. And because you can't see it, you don't know what to do. You can see how to take the first step. Mm. Go back to the problem, take the first step. Once you take the first step, you'll be able to see how to take the second step. And after you take the second step, you'll be close enough that you'll be able to see the answer. Yeah. And I never thought that. And uh, if it wasn't for that lesson, 
we would not be an ESOP. If it wasn't for that lesson, I would not be a CEO because I couldn't see how to get to the end when I started, but I knew how to take the next step. You know, that uh, that really resonates because uh, there was a time early in my business that I had almost for 30 years, um, and at, there was a time when I looked at the, being an ESOP, and uh, I just got kind of freaked out by how complex it seemed. And I don't think I took that right approach of just that one, that next step, just one thing at a time to get toward that goal. And uh, uh, and I ended up not, not doing it. And uh, um, so I completely understand how we look at problems and, and can get overwhelmed very quickly. And it really is about just making slow progress. Um, that's a great, great early lesson. What about um, any early, any early jobs or bosses or anything like that that kind of shaped your your leadership philosophies? Well, my uh, my first job was when I was eight. Mm. I started I started selling pencils. So I, I think I, I mentioned before that uh, my grandparents started a private school. So while they were giving private lessons, I would have to kind of wait after school to go home and. I saw the janitors cleaning up, and in, in that school, they had a, a stationery store where they sold school, school supplies. And um, I noticed there were a lot of pencils that were getting swept up and thrown away by the janitor. And it kind of hit me that, you know what, I think I can take the, those new-looking pencils and resell them tomorrow. So I started gathering up pencils, and I started a little pencil business selling pencils in, in school. And I then I would get all this money and then I didn't know what to do with the money so I would grab all my friends and go to the cafeteria and buy everybody snacks. So the cafeteria ladies kind of got wise after a while and they said his parents would never give him that kind of money. Something's going on. So they said something and uh, my grandparents asked me where I got the money from so I told them about my pencil business and they shut it down. Oh Oh, man. Um, What about school? uh, school experiences. Any uh, unique school experiences growing up? No unique school experiences growing up, but um, I did have a very, very unexpected experience as um, in my first job that was one of those things that also helped to shape me. So I, um, when I first got out of school, I was looking for a job and had a friend of the family that owned a dress shop. And he came by and he said, you know, I think I want you to write a software program for me. I have a lot of ladies that come in and shop with me and they spend thousands of dollars on dresses. And sometimes we lose contact with them and we can't remember who they are or where they came from. And I I really want to have a program that would allow me to track these purchases. So can you write some software for me to do that? So I said, sure. So I wrote a program Went to the dress store, I installed it. He came back a couple weeks later, he says, it's not working. What's wrong? He said, well, the program works, but they don't want to use it. You need to come work for me and you need to run the software. I said, well, I don't really want to work at a dress shop. That's not my thing. (laughs) He said, well, just for a while, and then you can actually perfect the software and add some new features to it. Oh, okay, add new features. I I think I'll do that. So I I went to work there, and this is like really strange for me. This is a foreign world. Mm -hmm. And so a couple weeks in, there was a gentleman that I I came out of my office, 
and uh, there was a gentleman that was sat standing around and he started talking to me and so I'm talking to him and thinking I need to get back to work this is like really bad they're gonna think I'm a slacker or something so I'm trying to get away from him and oh here comes my boss and I'm thinking oh boy now I'm in trouble says can I talk to you for a second I said yeah sure um listen I was I was trying to do my work and this guy started talking to me (laughs) listen I've got this man's wife in the dressing room spending $20,000 right now. You go over there and talk to that man. You keep talking. And that was like, what? I'm, you want me? Okay. So I went over there and I started talking to him. And it turned out that, I mean, if your wife's spending twenty grand on a couple of dresses, you're probably pretty successful. So he was an entrepreneur. He had a wonderful business. And he started telling me some stories and lessons about business. And... Um, Another guy walked in and his wife was shopping and then he started talking to me too. The next thing you know, it becomes a regular thing. I've got these these guys, these older guys that are worth like tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And the thing that they love the most about coming shopping with their wives is talking to Lester. I started learning all these lessons about businesses and how to grow it and I was telling them about the things I wanted to do in life, and they were giving me life advice. And I started to realize these guys that are worth all these millions, there's some very common elements in their stories. And it started to really form in my brain. There's a way to be successful, and they've all done it in different enterprises and and with different styles. But there's a commonality of the habits that they had. And that really started to form my my whole business uh, psyche. So give a give an example of uh, one or two of those habits that uh, you found were common amongst these entrepreneurs. Well, first of all, none of them were late risers. They all got up early, mm. and they all said that they did their best thinking in, early in the day, their best work early in the day, and they encouraged me to do the same. Uh, they all said, you know, uh, you need to have fun in your twenties. But you also need to understand that at some point you're going to have a family and have kids. And you, if, if you're ever going to put the pedal to the metal and work really hard, you want to do it before you have kids. So you don't have to do that when you have kids because you want to be able to enjoy your kids and your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they taught me. Uh, there's there's tons of little uh, things like that that I learned from them. And I and I applied. I applied. And, you know. You uh, you make money. You, you need to save money. You need to save for retirement. But you should always reward yourself a little bit. Mm, that's a good one too. You have to. Don't just don't just save. You have to reward yourself a little bit. And so there were. I, I still reflect on some of those lessons and find myself uh, actually telling people and teaching people some of the things I learned from them. So who would have thought? And. Uh, sure. I, I didn't stay at the dress store for very long. I finished the software. I said, there's nothing else I can do with this. It's time for me to leave. But um, I actually used to go back sometimes on Saturdays just so I could meet up with my old friend <laughs> on what I was doing. Well, it sounds like another habit they had is that they would uh, accompany their wife to the dress shop. Um, and I think that they went in part so they could hang with you, uh, which was great. I sure, I'm sure they got as much out of those conversations as you did. Um, so, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to tell Lester that you were so open to learning. You had these, uh, life lessons from, um, growing up both in, in family and, and in jobs and, and, you know, fast forward to 
uh, joining Life's Abundance in this IT role and then getting tapped to be the CEO. Uh, how, how did you deal with that once you, you know, got uh, the excitement went away and you said, OK, now I have a job to do? How did you approach your your new role? Interestingly enough, uh, my approach was almost the same. I think in part because of the lessons that I learned when I was working at the dress store, even though I was the director of IT, I thought that my role was to help Life's Abundance succeed. And whatever that meant and whatever that looked like on that particular day or at that particular time, that's what I would do. So I would uh, get involved in any and everything that I could to help the company succeed. Being in IT, I got to work with just about every department, no, every department, mm -hmm. and um, I knew how every piece of software worked. I knew how the business operated, so there was no real ramp-up period in terms of trying to understand what to do. And so I just kept uh, the same philosophy and kind of gathered the team around and said, well, uh, we've started a new chapter, and uh, my goal is to help everybody here do their job. Because if you all do an excellent job, the company is going to succeed. It's not about you helping me. It's about me helping you. And um, I always felt that way before. So it was just sort of saying it and letting everybody know and then getting to work. How did you earn their trust and confidence? Uh, was it simply just by getting them involved early on? Were there challenges or some people that said, wait a minute, you know, why did he get it? And um, how do we know he's going to lead the company the way we needed to be led? I think that everybody, because we worked together for nine years before I became CEO, one of the things about the management team is the management team that we had in 1999 was the same management team we had in 2008. Mm. So we all worked together for nine years and they all knew me and they all knew that, um, that I was capable. I think there were naturally some concerns, but I work with a great team of people and they never let those concerns show. They were just tremendously supportive and they would go out of their way to let me know that they were here for me and they were they would support me. And so that made the transition very easy. And I think, you know, years later we look back and I'm like, so you, were you guys worried about this or that? Well, it was a little scary. <laughs> uh, but they they just uh, buttoned up and went through it with you. Yeah, and, they uh, never did show. Yeah. So uh, I know you're very focused on uh, – the culture on core values on how those are lived every day. You created uh, videos representing all the core values. Uh, was the culture itself well entrenched uh, in the business when you took on that role and you were just kind of continuing it or did the culture need a change? Actually, I just had to continue it. One of the probably the most amazing thing about life's abundance is one of our co-founders, Carol Berardi, used to own her own staffing company, and she pretty much hired the management team. And she did a job that I, there's no words to describe how amazing of a job she did because she got a bunch of like-minded individuals together. And all the years that we've been in business as a management team, there's never been a knockdown drag out fight because uh, different factions wanted to take the company in different directions. We've always bought into what we 
when we joined the company, the goals that we had then are the goals that we have now. We bought into them then, and everybody's always been on board. The, the most difficult thing about our culture was it wasn't really written down. Mm-hmm. There was no, we had mission statements and things, but you know, we'd read them and I'd just kind of like, that's not quite, that's not really what we do. And my concern, the, the reason I got so focused on core values was I realized uh, a few years ago that over the next five to 10 years, a lot of the members of the management team would be retiring. And I felt like the the younger generation of leaders in the company wouldn't necessarily know what was expected of them. And I would sit down and say, guys, we have to come up with a way to explain this thing that we do when we all get together and make these decisions. We have to explain what's at the core, what drives our, our decision-making and our principles. Because if we can't, I'm afraid we're going to lose this culture. And that out of that uh, desperation almost came the core values. And at the end, we were very happy because they actually do describe who we are and who we've been for the last 20 years. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so important, like you said, to uh, to write them down um, and uh, to implement practices that will sustain people leaving the organization over time. Um, talk a little bit, Lester, about the conversion to an ESOP. How did that come about? So the conversion to an ESOP really came about out of the uh, some of our principals getting getting older and needing to have an exit strategy for getting out of the company. And so in having those discussions around how do we do this, a traditional M&A uh, type deal didn't seem quite right because I think we were all afraid that uh, selling the company to another entity, uh, number one, a lot of the employees that helped us to get where we are would be let go. Uh, number two, we would lose, the company would lose its mission and could potentially lose its culture as well. And nobody wanted to see that. So I said, well, it's, it's my job to figure it out. It's my job to figure out how we can devise an exit strategy that uh, where you get the value of what you built and we keep the culture and we keep the mission. And that was really where everybody was focused. And so I started looking at different types of, uh, of deals. And the ESOP really came up as being the, the best transaction because it really is the best thing for, for everybody. The employees end up with uh, ownership of the company. The selling shareholders get fair value for the stock that they're selling. They can actually maintain some upside in the company through things like warrants and they actually are some tax advantages to selling to an ESOP versus selling to a, an individual or a private equity group that allow you to keep more of the money. Right. So uh, if you can actually pull it off, if you can actually get the, the sides together and if the numbers work, it actually ends up being a very, uh, a very, very good way to go. And for us, and ESOP was a perfect, perfect vehicle. It sounds like it. And uh, have you had any challenges uh, since you know since you converted in terms of maintaining 
the culture or do people really value that uh, kind of that ownership mentality? People value the ownership mentality, but I think anytime you do something like uh, an ESOP, initially nobody really understands what it means. So you say, congratulations, you're all owners. Oh, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah. What does being an owner look like? I'm not sure. So I expect you guys now to think like owners. Well, what does an owner think like? I, I, don't, get, I don't get it. So y- you realize that, well, we have to start from scratch here. We have to start with the basics and uh, explain what ownership thinking is, what an ownership mentality is. And it also takes a while for people to uh, believe it. It takes a while for the significance of being an ESOP uh, to sink in. It's really, uh, it's not a, it's not something that's really tangible. So I'm an owner now. What changes today? Well, kind of nothing. Yeah. You know, in the future, you're going to get an account statement and that not everybody gets that right away. And so it takes, it took us maybe three years before I think a hundred percent of the people really started to um, digest what it really meant. Yeah, it, it's a definitely a long-term strategy, um, and uh, sounds like that is continuing. Um, you know, in a way, Lester, it sounds like some of this has gone so smoothly. Um, I know that it's not easy, and that there's challenges along the way. Can you think of a uh, a, a tough or humbling moment for you that maybe in the last few years you've experienced? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think. For me, the, the, the hardest thing is letting someone go that's been with you for a long time. That is the, the toughest thing that I've had to do as a leader. And it's even tougher when uh, the person's a really nice person. But what happens sometimes in, in companies, and I you know, read about this in business books and then it kind of dawned on me that this is now happening to me. You have somebody that's been with you, say, 10 years, and 10 years ago they were a great, great employee and a wonderful, uh, wonderful asset to the company. And now it's 10 years later, they're still a wonderful person, but their job performance is just not up to par. And it's not because they have regressed, it's because the company has progressed. And the company, the job that they were in 10 years ago has changed and has evolved and maybe gotten more complex. And they have not been able to to keep up with those changes. And so their job performance begins to slide over time. And you realize, I have this person that's a really, really great person that I like very much personally and that has been a, a team player over all these years. But if I don't do something, they're going to kill the company. I have to, I have to let them go. Mm-hmm. And that's something that it happens sometimes in companies, but it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, you're right. It's one of the toughest things to do. But the fact is that sometimes the company does outgrow some of the talent that we have. And yes. as much as we want to grow from people from within, uh, sometimes we're not big training companies and and we do the best we can but it's also good to bring in outside talent once in a while but those conversations are are really tough but you know the fact is that that person can probably thrive somewhere else and you know give them an opportunity to do that and grow in their career as well is there an aspect of leadership lester that you think that uh, you'd like to continue to improve upon yeah there's 
a ton of them. I, I, um, I guess I'm always looking at ways to improve. The thing I, the thing that I'd like to improve on the most is trusting my instincts more. So that, yeah, I'm, I'm a very numbers-driven, data-driven person. I'm very analytical. But over the course the, of time, over the long arc of my career, I realized that there's times when I know something is a bad idea and I, I, I can sense it, I know it, and I don't listen to my instincts. And then it plays out down the road that that was a really bad idea. And I started reflecting on, reflecting on this uh, several years ago, and I realized that my instincts aren't always right on, on people and on ideas, but they're right a lot more than they're wrong. And I think I would actually do better in certain circumstances if I just listen to my instincts and say, you know, that say, don't do that. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. And I just listening to your history and your influences, uh, I think your gut is probably right a good large percentage of the time. Um, so, Lester, you know, if you were talking to somebody uh, just starting out in their career and thinking about leadership qualities, uh, what kind of advice would you give somebody just kind of coming up? You know, Paul, that is a great question because that's something that I'm very, very passionate about. Um, Coming from a technology background, I, I see this so much, and, and I wish I could get this message out to more people. Don't panic. Be patient. So often I see people that are 24, 25, 26 years old, and everybody kind of rags on the millennials, but um, they're very unhappy, and they're very anxious about their future. And what I try to tell people is, I started at Life's Abundance when I was 30 years old. So for the first eight years of my career, I, I hadn't really found my home. But if it takes you till you're 30 years old or 32 years old to, to hit your stride, to find your home, it's perfectly fine because you still have a long, long, long career ahead of you. So don't panic if you've been out of school for two years or three years and you still don't feel like you're, you're, you're settled yet and you still don't feel like you're where you need to be. What you need to focus on in that time is becoming the ideal candidate for your ideal opportunity. And even if you're not sure yet what your ideal opportunity is, because you're still not sure what you want to do with your life, here's the things that you should really be focused on. How do I become a really good employee? developing your work ethic, understanding how to work with others, taking advantage of every opportunity to learn anything you can and be a sponge because those experiences may help you later on in life. I spent those eight years becoming the ideal candidate for this position at Life's Abundance. If I had been 25 years old when this opportunity came around, I would not have been ready. If I'd been 24 when the opportunity came around, I would not have been ready. So I think just realizing that you've got time, learn all you can, improve yourself, and become the ideal candidate. So when your opportunity comes around, you're ready to grab it and run. 
I think that's so important and great, great advice, Lester. Um, I see that all the time and I love the energy that millennials have in particular and, 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 and what they're looking for in terms of trying to save the world and, and, uh, make a difference. Um, but sometimes they feel so much pressure early on to have already discovered their talent and their passion. And I just say, man, just let it come to you. And it's going to probably be a number of years before that happens, and you got to experience a bunch of different things. So I think that's just incredible advice. Um, so let me just uh, fall, uh, end with these five quick hit questions, kind of like the association game. Maybe just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, name a leader that you look up to. You know, I don't really follow any one leader. I look up to different leaders for specific traits or specific acts. Very good. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. Ah, okay. Uh, do you have an all-time favorite movie? Star Wars. Oh. Uh, is there a TV series you like to binge watch? I do not watch TV apart from sports and news. Probably smart. Um, and uh, although you've been very open and genuine, what's something about you that many people don't know? When I was in college, the summer of my freshman year, I got my life and health insurance licenses as a something to do. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, very cool. Well, you've done everything from selling pencils and, uh, you know, to getting into IT and now running a very successful company. Uh, and uh, I congratulate you on the progress. And I, and, and I have some... Uh, instinct that the best is yet to come for you, Lester. So um, let me let me review a couple of things that you said that that just really hit me and uh, resonated. Uh, one is what the very practical thing you talked about uh, with your culture around doing um, monthly sit downs and reviews rather than annual performance appraisals and this casual conversation about what's working, what's not, what am I going to plan? I just love that, and I think it's a very practical thing our listeners can implement. Uh, some of the lessons you learned early on about the fact that words matter, that it's really hard to undo things that you say that are negative. You know, when you're a child, they can impact you for years. When you're even in business later on, they can impact the relationships that you have. And, and so words uh, can really be a, a very positive influence on the relationships that you build. Um, uh, the lesson that you learned from your teacher who gave you guys the math problem that you couldn't solve, that that you can't see what's around the corner. And uh, I think that's one of the most important things that you said is just take the first step or what I would say is just take the next step. Whatever project or thing that you're working on, if you can identify the next step, if as a leader you say, well, is that something I should be doing or I can delegate that, identify it and take action on that. I think that's really an incredible um, I think you were very lucky by being asked to work in that dress shop and uh, had those uh, successful entrepreneurs willing to spend time with you and engage uh, a, a young guy who's willing to learn and listen and and spend time with them. And uh, you got all these incredible lessons and you also got them to spend big money in the shop. So I know your boss loved it, too. Um you know, it would have been very challenging for some people to take on this role as the CEO of the company when you did in 2008. And I think what you did right away is you built upon the relationships you already had and you just started listening and uh, kind of institutionalizing the culture that already existed, writing things down, putting processes in place, realizing that people that had been there a while 
uh, could be leaving over time. And the only way that these would survive would be to create processes just like other processes you have uh, in the company. Um, the transition to an ESOP was a very successful transition. And yet, uh, you can't just say to someone, congratulations, you're an owner. You have to explain what that means. You have to get that behavior change uh, over time. Um, and lastly, just the the advice you gave to young people about being patient and realizing that very few of us are lucky enough to know what we're good at, know what we enjoy, identify our passion very early in life. Uh, it's something that comes with experience and relationships that we build. And if you can identify the path, you, like you said, whatever you're doing, uh, put yourself in the best position to be successful when that opportunity comes along. So uh, just great advice. And uh, again, congratulations on, on what you've done so far with Life's Abundance, Lester. I know there's uh, much greater things to come. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate the kind words and thanks for having me. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.